I'm Nick Steepro, and this is The Schema. In this episode, we're going to explore how Castell is deploying data-driven strategies to reimagine primary care and help providers succeed in value-based care. Today, we're talking to Dr. Will Danes, the Interim COO and Medical Director of Clinical Operations at Castell. Dr. Will Danes, uh, welcome to Chicago. Uh, great to have you here. Great to see you again. It's been a long time. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah. I would love if you could just start and tell me a little bit about yourself and the organization of Castell and the uh, little background on the innovation that you guys are driving. Sure. So I'm Will Danes. I'm a primary care internal medicine physician. I practice in Salt Lake for Intermountain Healthcare. I'm also the medical director for clinical operations for Castell and the interim chief operating officer for Castell. Castell is Intermountain Healthcare's population health platform company. So we support Intermountain Healthcare and allied organizations make the move to value-based care. We principally focus on helping organizations enter into value-based care arrangements and then helping them perform in those value-based care arrangements. Excellent. Love it. So um, we're going to launch into a bunch of questions. Want to hear everything. Great. Uh, we collectively, I've been in this industry for over a decade or so trying to transform healthcare. It's one of the biggest economic challenges facing the country, frankly. And a big part of the solution is a transition from fee-for-service into value-based care, right? So as we have made that transition, both yourself as a practicing physician, but also as the medical director and, and head of operations, what has made that transition uh, challenging for providers and the, the healthcare organizations writ large? It's a great question. Um, the first thing I'd say is the fact that it's challenging shouldn't be unexpected. We're yeah. talking about transforming the largest healthcare industry in the world. Sure. And uh, the problem is it's not just one industry, it's a whole bunch of different industries together. I think there are a few main challenges that we've faced as an industry trying to transition to value-based care. Part of the problem is that value-based care has been so fragmented. You have lots of different payer groups, lots of different provider groups trying to manage one-off connections between each other. And you end up with providers put in the position where maybe only one out of 20 or one out of 10 of their patients are in some sort of value-based care arrangement. So it's currently operating kind of at the fringe of the standard healthcare system, the fee-for-service healthcare system. And it's been hard to get enough momentum built up around value-based care when it's seen as being ancillary or on the side of quote-unquote normal practice. Mm -hmm. I think so much of the work we have to do is to make value-based care the standard way to practice, make sure. it such that most or even all of your patients are in a value-based care arrangement so you can bring to bear all of the tools that you have at your disposal in value to help your patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what, as, as Castell, what are you doing to bring the industry or at least your organization to that critical mass, right, where you have enough volume in value-based care where you're fully sold out to, to, to the concept? It's a great question. So we spend a lot of time working with both payers and providers to understand how to bring them both to the table to enter into those value-based care arrangements. Yeah. We work on growing the number of value-based care lives that providers are managing, and we work on that by building the connections with the payers to help the payers understand what they can get out of medical groups that are performing really well in value. And then once we have increased to that critical mass that you described, we provide medical groups with the types of support tools and data and analytics that they need to succeed. 
So we focus a lot on entering into value-based care arrangements and then helping providers manage well in those value-based care arrangements. There was something you said at the top, which I quite liked and I hadn't heard before, but the concept, we all talk about transforming healthcare as an industry, but to your point, it's actually dozens of industries uh, and you have totally disconnected institutions and organizations from you know PBMs to payers to providers to hospitals, acute care, post-acute care, et, et, et cetera. Can you talk to me a little bit about the connective fabric required for success in transforming this, uh, this industry of industries? So I think we have to start from the position that improving healthcare, driving towards better outcomes and a lower cost, that sounds unimpeachable, right? It mm -hmm. sounds like the obvious thing we would want to do. And it's not challenging because we're trying to talk people into a model of care that is worse for patients or higher cost. It's hard to do because even though the objectives are unimpeachable, how you get there is really complicated. Yeah. Part of the problem is finding how each industry or each group within an industry can find a benefit for them and their constituents in moving to value-based care. So you have yeah. to work with provider groups to help them understand what's in it for them, what's going to allow them to take better care of their patients. Mm -hmm to work with payers to help them see how is this going to be better for their members. And you go down the line of different subsectors of the healthcare industry, we have to do a better job of moving beyond platitudes of you know, value-based care will be great for everybody and help those industries see how they have an active hand and an ability to contribute to moving value forward. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's really, it's a problem of incentive alignment, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and to that question, what what role do you have in negotiating, and this can be you personally or just Castell, in negotiating the contracts such that you drive aligned incentives between the um, you know, end-to-end organizations in healthcare delivery? So a lot of the work is about alignment. So it's about going to a group of medical groups and saying, we can provide a slate of payers mm -hmm. who want to align around certain value-based concepts those payers understand that by using a unified set of tools amongst those providers, they can get better outcomes for their members. Mm -hmm. And the provider groups can understand that by striking a balance amongst payers of various quality measures or incentive programs, that they're no longer managing 20 different contracts with 400 different quality indicators. Sure that um, moving towards that critical mass does require that we start to package payer programs together and package medical groups together such that they are streamlined and more efficient in how they manage value. Yeah, yeah. In doing that, you wanna make sure that you're not losing what makes an individual medical group unique. And we view one of our major roles as helping independent medical groups stay independent. Mm -hmm by giving them the tools that they may not be able to go out and build on their own. One of the big problems with transitioning to value-based care is that you have a bit of a sequencing problem. Do you go out and secure a bunch of value-based contracts and then go and try and build the tools that you need to succeed? Or do you go build a bunch of tools that you think will work in value and hope that you get the value-based care contract that you can apply those tools towards? And so part of what we do in Castell is try to help groups get through that sequencing problem by bringing them payers who are already interested in value and willing to partner with groups, and then a tool set within Castell that can help a provider from day one manage that value. Yeah, I love that. It 
triggers a question for me. I'm, I'm very interested in your answer here. All of that is a tremendous amount of work, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think as we look at the industry, it's very obvious that there's a tremendous amount of waste, right? We spend more per capita on this than any other country, and our outcomes are mediocre at best, sort of nationally. Mm -hmm. So we know there's a lot of waste, but in order to get to that point of savings, there's a tremendous amount of catalytic energy required to do that. And that might be catalytic energy from relationships and contracting, but also the technology that needs to be deployed, the change management, et, et, et cetera. The other side of that is that we're not an industry that's um, got a lot of slack, right? Mm -hmm. So people aren't just loafing around. There's a tremendous amount of fatigue in this industry. So how do you think about that duality, the challenge of generating enough catalytic energy to make big change, while also accepting that, particularly after 18 months of a pandemic, you are dealing with an industry that is very stressed and very fatigued? You're absolutely right that if you walked into any clinic today or any hospital anywhere in the country, there are not people sitting around. People are going 110 miles an hour all the time. It's been really important for us as we've thought about value-based care to approach the problem of how are we making the job of providing great medical care easier. If a group is trying to walk in and help a, a medical group transform and they're not focused from day one on making the job easier, they're gonna go nowhere. Yeah. There is not uh, an ability for healthcare to add on yet another thing right now. So we focused a lot of our efforts in Castell on how do we make it easier for providers to give great care? How do we support with data, analytic tools, uh, population health support teams, coding and documentation support teams, so that when we walk into a clinic, we can actually say, here, let us take a little bit from you in terms of the burden of providing care sure. and free up time and energy in the clinic to really dedicate towards the things that are already super pressing. Yeah. We also think that you have to really put the provider team in the position to provide the best possible care. Nurses, doctors, advanced practice providers, they will run through brick walls mm -hmm. if they know it would be good for their patients. There is no shortage of both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for those professionals to do a great job. We have to make sure that our tools are augmenting their ability to perform as opposed to detracting. Yeah. So if population health is coming once a month and dropping a list on somebody's desk and saying, can you get to this after you're done with all the rest of your work? You are not putting them in the position to succeed and you're not creating a clear connection between actions that need to be taken and the outcomes that that's gonna create for patients. Yeah. If you have a system that can come in and say, hey, we're gonna offload some of this work for you and here's the connection between the things that we want you to do and what it's gonna do for your patients, that's gonna do a, a huge amount to help with that transition. Mm -hmm. If coding and documentation is just about box checking, you're not gonna win over any physicians or advanced practice providers. If we can connect coding and documentation with better uh, acknowledgement of their population's illnesses, better resources to take care of those illnesses and connect those to programs that actually improve people's health, then we can create that connection for people that population health, it's not just something we do because we've been told to do it, but it's something that directly contributes to the health of my patients and our collective patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanna, I wanna dig into that. Um, the provider, the physician, the advanced care providers um, and, and their role. Let's get a little personal here, right? Mm -hmm. You're a 
physician, internist, primary care doc, carry a panel. What do you think about your role as a practicing physician and how that evolves in this transition to value-based care? It's an interesting question. It's probably going to be a little bit different for every provider, but most providers who are out there, they went to medical school, they did a residency, but where they really went to school was in the fee-for-service system. They would show up every day at work and they'd walk right in to see their first patient and they'd go as fast as they could all day long until the last patient came in and then they'd go and do all of their documentation and, and then the next day is kind of a repeat. There was not a lot of room for stopping, slowing down, asking what do my patients need, especially the ones who may not be in the office today. And so part of what we've tried to go through as we've helped groups make this transition to value-based care is saying, we can create room in your day to think about the patients who aren't right in front of you. Um, The patients who are in front of you today are going to get great care because they're coming to see you. But what about the patient who's too ill to make it in today? The patient who's fallen through the cracks, the patient who uh, discharged from the hospital a week ago and their follow-up appointment isn't for a month. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to ask of us providers to be willing to really engage in the idea of team-based care. Mm-hmm. As we went through residency and got into our, uh, our full practices, the care that was provided was the care that I provided. And uh, we have talked about concepts like team-based care for a while, but I don't know that we've really engaged with it. Mm-hmm. Part of the transition we have to go through in primary care is to know and trust the other team members who are gonna be able to do things we can't do as an office-based provider or a hospital-based provider. So for example, a patient who's discharging from the hospital may need a house calls team that goes and visits in the home. They may go to a rehabilitation facility where they are cared for by an advanced practice provider in that facility. The patient may not need me, they may need a nutritionist or they may need a behavioral health therapist. Mm Uh, one of the transitions we'll have to go through as providers is a willingness to really engage that team and lead that team uh, and not focus so much on, I'm going to go 100 miles an hour in my clinic, and if I've done that every day, I've done a good job. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, in many ways, it's a um, transition from a reactive, transactional view of care to whole person management. Absolutely. And to that, I mean, it is, it is not just a... Um, change in thinking or program design, but there's a fundamental technology investment that you need to make to understand who is falling through the cracks and who is not engaging in primary care, which brings me to analytics mm-hmm. at Castell. So you've got a fantastic analytics team. I know a lot of them very, very well. Can you describe your specific relationship with that analytics team and how you think about making those investments to enable this type of whole person care? So we do have a great analytics team. Uh, Andrew Sorensen, Lisa Mekic, Lincoln Haycock, and Fat Doan lead our analytics program. They do a wonderful job. As we work with analytics, uh, just every day that goes by, we understand how important it is that we get even closer with that team, that there not be a transactional relationship between an operations team and an analytics team, but really that we're considering problems together. One of the things I love about our analytics team is that they hire people and train people to understand the entirety of the problem we're trying to solve, not to look at things as an individual report or an individual product that goes out, but really try to understand from A to Z, what are we trying to solve and what is the role of analytics in that larger problem? 
we've had great examples in our organization of people on the data and analytics team raising their hand and saying, wait, are we straying from what we need to do to transform healthcare? They also do a really good job on producing a great report, but they keep their eye on the ball in terms of the overall mission of the organization. Mm -hmm. We've also spent a lot of time working on ways that we stay connected upstream to discover problems before they become problems and not wait and then be reactive to say, I thought we were gonna have this report or this data feed at a certain time. We wanna look around corners and anticipate those problems, solve them before they become you know, really critical. Yeah. On the operations side, there's also a bit of a transformation that we've, uh, we continue to go through to make sure that we're not approaching our analytics colleagues in that transactional way. Mm. Uh, I think a, a historical way of approaching these problems is that a bunch of physicians and operators go into a room and we think up a bunch of data requests and then we go hand a list to somebody and say, hey, can you pull this data for us? It continues to be a, a, a transition for us to think about, okay, as we design the questions we're gonna ask, as we design the solutions we wanna implement, how do we bring in the analytics team so that they are there with us and telling us today what's possible, what's not possible, what are the questions we're not asking ourselves and what could be hidden in the data that we wouldn't even think to look for? Uh, I love that. And it requires such mission alignment, mm -hmm. top to bottom in the organization. So culturally, can you just describe the culture at your organization and how you drive and foster that type of, you know, deep in the bone mission alignment so that you can lean on each other in the way that you've described? So Castell is a uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Intermountain Healthcare, and Intermountain Healthcare has a truly wonderful mission. It's the mission of helping people live the healthiest lives possible. And we have adopted that as also our mission. So we talk all the time about helping people live the healthiest lives possible. From the hiring of senior leaders down to the hiring of first year analysts and uh, you know, new care traffic controllers, we talk to people in the interview process about why they wanna be part of Castell, why they wanna transform healthcare, and what do they see as their ability to contribute to helping people live the healthiest lives possible. It's both true and sad that pretty much everybody in America has a story where they feel like the healthcare system let them down in some way. And so it's not hard to find people who can say, my brother or my cousin or my mom had a healthcare experience that wasn't what it was supposed to be and they weren't able to live the healthiest life possible because of it. And we, we ask about those, we talk about those, we want to use those experiences to help maintain that energy. You know, when it's the middle of winter and it's the end of the day and we're really pressing hard on a problem, we need people to go back to those personal experiences. It's always a problem in an organization to keep your mission front and center. Mm -hmm. um, we engage in uh, you know, weekly and monthly meetings with all hands uh, across the organization, and we always lead with an experience moment where we try to look within our organization to say, how did something we provide, a service, a product, uh, a report, how did that actually get to a real person? Mm -hmm. It's easier for perhaps a primary care physician or somebody who's directly interacting with patients to see how this thing that we worked so hard on for weeks or months or years actually got to a patient. Mm -hmm. It's harder if you are um, 
an analyst or or in the finance department, somebody who doesn't get to talk with patients all that often, you may you may not know how am I contributing to changing a life. Sure. And by going back to these experience moments when we start our meetings, we are trying to pull those experiences front and center so people can take that energy and apply it through the rest of their day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great. You know, you you, you mentioned everyone's got a story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we are living through uh, a pandemic where um, it is in many ways prolonged due to a lack of trust in the system and a lack of trust of medical institutions and you know, enabling individuals to live the fullest, healthiest lives possible is, is innately an exercise in trust building. Um, do you wanna just talk to me a little bit about how you, as a practitioner, but also um, uh, as, as a medical director, how you think about fostering trust between yourself and the uh, patients you serve? It's a very challenging question and there's certainly not a single answer. There's that old saying that you can take a a lifetime to build trust, a moment to erode it. Mm -hmm. And so we view building trust with our customers, building trust with the patients that we serve as an everyday process. It's not something we can have a trust week or a trust month. It's an everyday process. And we also have to earn that trust, and we we acknowledge that. When we make a mistake, we own up to it. When a report doesn't work the way it's supposed to, we own up to it. When uh, a provider expects something of our care traffic control team and we're, for one reason or another, not able to provide it, we have to own up to that. As it relates to the larger healthcare system, I think we need to give people something to believe in. People have come to expect, unfortunately, a rather dismal level of service from the broader healthcare system. They've come to expect that uh, while they love their doctor, their health system may not know them, may not know what really matters to them. Um, We may be contacting them in ways that they haven't used for years. We're sending them letters and it's been a year since they've put a stamp on anything. we, We think part of the trust building exercise is to come to people, not just to build a shinier building that we think people ought to come to. And I, I mean that both literally in the sense of, you know, building a thousand bed hospital is probably a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. We have to invest in resources that are closer to the communities that are served. And I mean that metaphorically as well, that saying, well, we're going to go off in this corner and make healthcare beautiful and expect you to come to us. That's not going to work. Sure. We need to build our healthcare system so that we are taking it to people. Again, communicating with them in the ways that they want to be communicated with talking to them about the things that matter to them, not just the things that we think matter to us. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an exercise in empathy too, is understanding where the patients are, who they are, so that you can actually take this care to them and not expect them to you know, proactively roll up to the shiny building. One of the things that we're really proud of is uh, investing in work on social determinants of health, mm. where we can go find out what's most important to patients and we're early in this effort very early in this effort but even early in the effort we are hearing stories that we just didn't know existed in our own backyard patients who are struggling for essentials of life and we're off here talking to them about taking their cholesterol medication mm-hmm. i've had a chance to speak with the care coordinators that are doing that outreach work and i've shared that i'm embarrassed to say this but in my practice i probably spent 
you know, hours and weeks of my life talking to people about things that I thought were important, but they weren't ready to hear because they were grappling with a true essential of life. Yeah. Housing, food, transportation, it, these things that um, if we're not paying attention to them are going to impede the ability to get excellent healthcare, that ability to live the healthiest life possible. Yeah. And so in terms of building trust, we have to earn it by showing them we care about them, not just showing them that we're interested in them coming to our office because that's how it's always been. Right. I'm curious on that because Salt Lake City in Utah generally is, relatively speaking, more homogenous than a lot of America, right? Both um, racially, ethnically, economically, et cetera. So how do you think about how your model scales or applies or is tweaked for you know other other regions that are suffering the same problems but with a more diverse population. So it's a great question. Utah, in many ways, does have a more homogenous population, and yet we span the urban to rural divide. We have a large percentage of our population that was not born in the United States mm -hmm. and was doesn't speak English as a first language. There are certainly going to have to be tweaks as we think about other markets and. Um, moving into places we've never been before, but the fundamental strategy of asking people what matters to them and trying to meet them there, that's a strategy that applies anywhere. Completely. We're gonna have to make adjustments for sure, but if we focused solely on building a program according to our own predetermined specifications and not starting from the first principle of, let's go ask people what they need and help them, I'd worry about us. But since we're starting with that question of, how do we engage a population meaningfully in their healthcare? How do we engage a population meaningfully in the idea of working on social determinants with us? That, that strategy will work anywhere. Sure, sure, love that. You, I hear this a lot when I talk to your team, there's this phrase, and I almost think it's trademarked, but I know it's not, this <laughs> concept of reimagining primary care. Mm -hmm. I guess two questions. One, how do you think that applies to your team's ethos and, 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 and how that builds culture? But also, very future-looking, how do you reimagine primary care? So you're right. Reimagine primary care is a phrase we use a lot. It both describes a program in the Intermountain Medical Group, so in the employed physician group that's part of Intermountain Healthcare. It's a, a type of value-based practice that built up in 2018 and 2019 and uh, is closely tied with the creation of Castell. But it's also an ethos, or it's, it's a mindset, that we have to ask difficult questions about the system we've all inherited, and we have to design solutions to address the problems we find. So part of the process of reimagining primary care is to ask, how does the concept of fee-for-service productivity impact the care that's provided in a primary care clinic? Does it do good things? Does it do some harmful things? What is productivity for a primary care physician? Mm -hmm. Should productivity be measured as the number of visits or should it be measured as the right number of visits? Visits at the right time or the right place or using the right level of resource. Other difficult questions relate to uh, what I mentioned before, the idea of who's on my schedule today. That's the classic way of approaching primary care. It's saying, well, is that really the most important question? Maybe the most important question is who's not on my schedule today but should be? because only by going to find those patients who should be on my schedule but aren't will we find the people who are truly falling through the cracks. Sure. Difficult questions along the lines of, um, what does a care team look like? 
for years of practicing in primary care, I, it was me and my medical assistant, and it was kind of us going as fast as we could all day long. That may not be the right care team for where healthcare is going. And part of what we've contributed in terms of reimagining primary care is adding in other support teams to help me be the best possible physician. So reimagining primary care, I, I would say it's not something we have done and now can say complete. Reimagining primary care is a constant reevaluation of the status quo. And if there's something great in the status quo, we are going to keep it. If there's something that needs to change, we're going to change it because that's what our patients want and need and deserve. I'd also want to say we're not the only group out there that is asking those difficult questions. And one of the real challenges for us as a healthcare system going forward is how do we combine the efforts and the intellects of the people who are asking these hard questions but maybe feel like they're alone in asking them. I was part of the group in Intermountain Medical Group that developed and deployed the reimagined primary care model. And as we would go from practice to practice describing this model to providers, so many of them would say, finally, this is the system, the way of practicing medicine I'd been waiting for. Mm -hmm. This is how I thought I would be practicing medicine when I came out of residency. The fact that we had that experience going from provider to provider within our own medical group means that if we were to go across medical groups and present the same concepts, present the same idea of looking for a better way, we would have people all over the country saying, oh, that's what I want to do. That's what I thought primary care was going to be. Reimagining primary care, I'd say the, the, the limitation in that phrase is that it only references primary care. Mm, yeah. And I think that future evolutions of value-based care will involve reimagining specialty care, reimagining hospital care, reimagining non-physician-oriented care. Sure. We, we tend to focus so many of our programs as a healthcare system on what does the physician need? It only is worth tackling if the physician has put in a CPT code for it. But there's so much care that can be provided by non-physicians, by allied health professionals, and we need to reimagine those fields as well. Um, so by no means would I want to represent that the work of reimagining primary care is done. It's a work that's ongoing and a work that needs to expand beyond the boundaries of primary care. Completely. Agile, iterative, totally get it. Yeah. Let's wrap here on a final question, a little crystal ball. So. Mm -hmm. As of now, uh, value-based care as a contracting structure is still um, a relatively small share of all patient lives nationally. How do you see that evolving over the next two, five, ten years? Um, and in when, whether that's you know novel contract structures or um, us selling out to that expansion of Medicare Advantage, I'm, I'm just curious how you see the marketscape evolving. So I don't have a crystal ball. Um, as we know, some of this hinges on political conversations related to the future of Medicare. Are we going to go in a Medicare for all or a Medicare for all who want it type of direction? No matter what happens at the federal level or at state levels, I think we'll know that the concepts of value-based care apply whether we're talking about a government payer or private payers. Yeah. For me, the part of the industry to really keep an eye on is employers. Mm. We very rightly view the patient as the end consumer of healthcare, but the group out there that's buying most healthcare in the United States or buying most healthcare insurance are employers. Totally. We know that we're in a very tight labor situation right now, and employers are looking for ways to compete with each other. 
right now they're doing it a lot on wages. But if you're a large employer, the main albatross hanging around your neck is your healthcare expense. Yeah. And so I anticipate that employers will be the groups that really start to push us farther and faster in value-based care. And traditional employer-sponsored healthcare will probably change dramatically. So in terms of positioning ourselves for future success, I think it's really looking at what does the employer need in terms of lower cost, better outcomes, and an ability to compete for uh, talent in the labor pool. The other thing that I'm, I think is really important that should happen in the next five to 10 years is merging the concepts of value-based care with the concept of consumer-oriented medicine. Mm. So there've been a lot of strides recently in consumer-oriented medicine. The pandemic has driven a lot of yeah. that as people have been able to access uh, healthcare through telehealth or uh, get testing at home for COVID, you know, all sorts of, of new applications of consumer-based healthcare. The concepts of value-based care and consumer centrism, they've been adjacent, but not exactly overlapping. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be great if those concepts moved closer to each other. A lot of the healthcare that is designed to be consumer centric is still highly episodic and companies are competing with each other on a slightly lower price point per unit, a cheaper telehealth visit. Those sorts of things are are fine. They're, they're real advances to have companies competing for healthcare on the basis of consumer centrism, but they don't really do much right now to tackle the total cost of care issue. And the more we have the healthcare industry viewing consumer centrism as a way to compete for patients, not just on a per click basis and a per use basis, but systems that really provide overall consumer centric experiences that lower the cost of care. I think that's where we need to go because then we'll have employers really pushing for value-based care as a way to solve their problems. And we'll have individual consumers, individual patients looking for solutions in the value-based care arena because that's what they want is um, not just a lower per click telehealth visit, but a system of care that's really gonna lower their overall medical expense. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's the it's incentive alignment, but it's bringing in the aligning the consumer, aligning the employer, providers, payers. Mm -hmm. uh, this is awesome. Thanks a lot for your time, Dr. Will Dance. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. This was great. Cool.